This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Michael and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Alien, the 1979 masterpiece directed by Ridley Scott, screenplay by Dan O'Bannon. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. Okay, so I'm really excited to dive into this. Uh, but before we do, a couple quick business things. First of all, uh, if you missed it, we have a patron exclusive up on Nope. We all went and saw Jordan Peele's Nope and talked about it. And so that is a patron exclusive episode that you can find on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And for our next episode, as a little bit of a change of pace after our unintentional, totally intentional, unintentional Ridley Scott trilogy, <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about Lady Bird by Greta Gerwig, which I'm very excited to revisit. So yeah, so if you haven't seen that, go out and watch it, prepare yourselves. But for now, we're going to talk about Alien. Yeah. Alien is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I've... I've recently been trying to keep track, actually, of, like, like create a list of when people say, what are your favorite movies? Mm. Instead of being like, that's an impossible question. I don't know. I've started actually writing down movies as I think of them to be like, oh, I should say what that. And Alien is on that <laughs> list. Uh, I saw it. I don't know exactly how old I was, probably around 10, young enough to be terrified of the movie, but old enough to appreciate how awesome the movie was all at the same time. The moment when Dallas is in the tube and the alien's coming and he like turns the flashlight to the camera and then he turns back away and the alien's right there is like the scariest moment like I had ever experienced and in my life. And it reaches its little man hands out <laughs> for like a hug. Yeah. <laughs> Hold me. <laughs> yeah, it was terrifying. Anyway, so... Uh, I love this movie. It scared me, but I, I loved the filmmaking and the mood and the setting and all of that so much that I forced myself to watch it and watch it and watch it. Uh, so I love this movie. The making of the behind the scenes, because they released, uh, it's probably 15 years ago now, but they released like a very in-depth behind the scenes making of like box set for the Alien franchise back in the day. Uh, and it's one of those behind the scenes documentaries that doesn't hold back and really is happy to spill the tea on exactly <laughs> the craziness that was going on and uh, making the movie. It's one of those 70s movies where you're like, you people shouldn't have been allowed to make movies that way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so fascinating all at the same time. So uh, I highly recommend watching that also if you haven't, if you're a fan. But Alien is great i love sci-fi i love the kind of elevated horror aspects of it uh the characters the writing the situation just all of it i love it and it's great uh big fan over here 
So that's me and Alien. I want to hear from you guys. Alex, tell me about Alien. I think I probably saw it around the same age, like, you know, 10 or 11 or something there where yeah, just old enough to be able to like watch it. Um, my dad was a big fan. And so I think he wanted to show it to us on you know, VHS and all that. And yeah, I mean, I remember the movie, you know, just the imagery and the iconic moments were immediately with me forever, you know, post that movie. But also my hazy memory of it was kind of like, it's kind of boring and like, what's even happening? And like, I can't understand like half the dialogue and there's like the, all these long moments, just like the wind sound is so loud, like for so long. <laughs> why? And so like a lot of things like my my brain that was adapted to like, well, this is like a sci fi like thriller movie that those are a certain way was kind of confused by the construction of this movie and the long drawn out set pieces and even images like were so new that I, I, I don't think my brain knew what to make of them. Like, what do they call them? The uh, like the driver of the alien ship that is like a skeleton space jockey space Space jockey. That's the word. Yeah. Like, I don't think I knew what I was looking at. I think that in in that room, like I my brain didn't know that that was a body in a chair. I just I literally didn't know what I was looking at. So it's interesting to revisit it as an adult and see these images again that I saw for the first time at that age. With like, you know, just more complexity in my mind and like understanding of context and like subtitles so I can see what they're they're literally saying this is a body that seems to be growing out of the chair or something. Long story short, it was a very, had a huge impression on me, but I didn't fall in love with it at that age. And I think it wasn't until they released it in theaters or maybe it was just like a Halloween special thing. Um, One summer, like in high school, we saw it at like the AMC theater in, you know, Arizona. And that's when I got it. That's watching it in a theater on the big screen where you're forced to just pay attention and like soak in the movie. That was where that was kind of the aha moment of like, oh, this is cinema. This is not just a monster movie. This is something else. And that was, you know, around the time of my mind was also just being exposed to more and more interesting films as a teenager, uh, as an aspiring filmmaker. So that's when it clicked for me. And I've never looked at it the same way ever since. I mean, that's when I realized this is a masterpiece and it's just gorgeous and amazing and nothing else like it really, even like sense. I can't think of many other yeah. movies that seem as groundbreaking as this one, as far as just introducing novel concepts that like nobody had ever seen before in a sci-fi movie. It's just pretty remarkable. Yeah, I like Blade Runner came to mind when you said that, and I was like, mm-hmm. "Right, Scott, Ridley Scott, yeah. like <laughs> he had a good run. He's made some right movies. there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, awesome. Okay, Brian, what about you? Tell me about Alien. Yeah, you know it's funny you mentioned Blade Runner. I was just thinking while watching the beginning, the the first ten minutes of Alien, where it's just setting the tone and everything. How much that just feels like Blade Runner. It's like I can't think of many more movies other than those two that just in the first five minutes are like, here's something you've never seen before. And even 40 years later feels like something you haven't seen again. Like just something just so tangible and visceral and moody about it all. But uh, yeah, for me, it was, it was interesting. I think it was actually, I think alien resurrection was the first alien movie I saw. Um, (laughs) And I don't even remember if I saw the whole thing or not, but um, it was my friends in college. I think it was like, just to like show off their speaker system or something. We're watching the like flame 
flamethrower scene where clone Ripley finds all the like failed Ripley clones and then says Spoilers like, for Alien Resurrection, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going to spoil the whole franchise. That scene is so disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and then I th- but I think at some point we watched the whole movie together. Um, but then I think it was probably that summer where I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this whole franchise. So weirdly for me, for as different as these four movies are, the quadrilogy, like they all feel like one thing to me because that's kind of how I've always watched them. I've definitely seen the first two more than three and four, just because I don't always watch them all, but I've, but I've watched them all probably more than most people have, because I just sort of, once I watch them, I'm like, yeah, I'll watch another alien movie. I don't care if it's not great. I want to talk about the franchise later and how each movie kind of changes what the tone of it all is and what it's trying to do and kind of expands the universe. But this movie in general, I think, as you said, Alex, probably, didn't jump out to me right away as as being as well made as it is because it is just slow more slowly paced but i also have tolerance for slowly paced movies and i appreciate movies like i don't know the elephant man or something where it's just like it feels very much slow by design it's not boring it's slow and those are two different things that i think people Mm -hmm. mix up a lot um but yeah this is just a movie that every time you watch it you just appreciate how You know, as much as like Aliens is a really fun movie, this is a movie where just every frame seems like it's just full and and you just want to appreciate every, you know, every scene of this movie and every moment of it. Yeah, absolutely. Like the sound also. It's like Mm -hmm. computers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, I, I think when we're teenagers or whatever, we are like sitting through the first 20 minutes of a movie waiting for like stuff to happen. Right. Right. And now I'm like the first 10 minutes of aliens, like maybe my favorite 10 minutes of alien, just like watching, you know, then when like he, John Hurt wakes up and we kind of do the slow crossfade and everything. I'm just like, yeah, just show me this music video for the next 90 minutes. I'm good. It's like total art film for a while. Yeah. 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 Just like, yeah. Moving through the ship. It's empty. Like it's gorgeous. Yeah. 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 Uh, Awesome. Okay. Trisha, what about you? Yeah, I'm relatively new to this movie, actually, um, because I was too scared to watch it when I was younger. Um, I'd heard it was one of the scariest movies ever, and I was like, cool, great. Um, No, that's a pass from me. It's one of these movies where it's so present in culture that, like, I'd seen it in chunks and, like, bits and pieces and scenes. And, you know, you can't not have seen the chestburster scene like that's a thing you've seen everything's a thing you've seen at a certain point um and you know the design of the alien is something you've seen like all this stuff and so at a certain point i was just like i can watch this i think i've basically watched it already (laughs) um but it might have been honestly for our aliens versus t2 video that i sat down and really fully turned it on and watched Mm. it from start to finish um and it rules uh, like it's, <laughs> it's so good. You know, it's fascinating and I can't wait to talk to you guys about it more, but there's so much about it that feels like the old, like movies aren't made this way anymore. Mm. And, and so much of that is because it's allowed to just be what it is, right? It, there are so many movies where we can kind of see the structure or the strings or like the, um, development process is showing right or like (laughs) there's something Uh, where in modern film and tv i find where i'm like and here's our inciting incident here's mm. our character's flaw and here's and like i'm not saying that any of that is bad right but you know one of the things we talk about a lot 
together on this podcast is like how to make those things feel organic, right? Where it's like there, we, we as audiences have certain expectations. You don't want to purposefully frustrate those expectations unless you have a very specific reason. But at the same time, if you feel like you're just going down a checklist, checking boxes, your audience is going to bump on it. When we get long expository speeches, we get mad about that because we notice, oh, look here, I'm getting a bunch of information and I'm bored. Um, and it, it's astounding to me that this movie does so little mm-hmm. of the checkboxes. Like, who are they? Don't know. Uh, what do they want? Nah, get back to Earth. Uh, the themes, um, Ripley as a character arc. Well, Ripley as a protagonist, Ripley is the protagonist Mm -hmm. question mark. It's Mm -hmm. just like everything about it is like, there are nothing, there's nothing visible about the like things movies must have, um, as you watch it. It's just, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to say it's no plot, just vibes, but it's very little of anything except vibes. <laughs> um, and yet it's it's astounding and wonderful. I don't know. They really, really, really would not let you make a movie like this, even on a script level anymore. Um, it just feels like absolutely not. We have to have more. We have to know more than this. We have mm-hmm. to know more about everything. I, I read the script today for the first time. Ooh, it is very sparse. <laughs> There is so little in it and there's more in the script than is in the movie is -hmm. also true. So it's like they had a very, very bare bones kind of a script and then they just cut a bunch out of it and and or garbled it so you can't hear what anybody says. And uh, that's alien. And it it rules so hard. I don't know. It's like it feels it, it feels incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've talked before about the seventies and I just think it's such a fascinating decade, um, for film because, you know, sort of the thirties to the fifties was kind of like, here's what a movie is. We've kind of figured it out. And the sixties, everything got crazy. Like every, the whole, all the whole country was going the opposite direction. And then like the best movies from the world were not from the States. They were, they were from Japan and from France and everything. And sixties, like there's so few sixties movies that are like the greatest movies of all time. (laughs) They're, they're just like, they're, well, they're musicals. Like the ones we still watch from the 60s are huge musicals. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and then the 70s was sort of kind of fusing all this finally, right? Where it was like you had the uh, cinema verite tone of everything, right? Where even a movie like Alien or Jaws. It's like that. those movies felt like I'm just watching real people be real people. But we were also starting to learn like structure and like audiences and what do people actually want to see in a movie? And I think the the movies from the seventies that still resonate today are the ones that, that do both those things. Cause it, we're still, it's still hard to get that cinema verite thing from a lot of filmmakers today, but we, we figured out structure, right. And the seventies just had this like really beautiful thing that matches that. And that's what I love about the first act of alien is it's just, Alien and The Shining and The Exorcist and The Omen, a lot of these, it's just like you spend the first act just being like, here's some people like we're not we're not showing you like a monster eating someone's head off in the first like, you know, thing or whatever. Like, no, just here's some characters, spend some time, truckers in space, get to know them, get to know what they what they joke about and whatever. And then when we finally kick everything off, then we're like, oh, yeah, I I believe this is a documentary I'm watching. I can't believe that there's an alien here. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Jaws was 1975 mm-hmm. and really obviously a watermark in film for a variety of reasons. The midpoint of, of the decade, if you will. If, yes. 
<laughs> and of course, this movie borrows, you know, for it used Jaws as a reference point to get made. Yeah. And when we did our convert, when we had our conversation about Jaws and we did a video about it as well, we were like, okay, here's the trio of characters. And we kind of broke them down in their character design. And we kind of like, you know, dug into their arcs and some of the themes and like kind of identified the midpoint and, and did the second act and the push and pull of the characters in the second act of Jaws. And I think all of that is in there. However, when I was watching, I mean, every time I watch it, I'm like, I'm not sure that all of this was like plant per se. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm not sure that all of the like structural things that are happening actually were planned to happen in Jaws. It does have that feeling of like, well, this guy saw his character that way and that guy saw his character that way. And they kind of said this stuff and like, you know, Robert Shaw rewrote that whole, you know, thing about the shark. And it's a little loosey goosey. And I feel like Alien is taking the loosey goosiness kind mm. of of the characters of like, just let the characters breathe and exist and not at all stumbling into any structural points in the way that Jaws might have by accident. Right. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, this is like not really about alien anymore, but just structure isn't something we as a society decided to do and then started right. doing it in movies. It's something we identified that was right. in, you know, a, a repeating thing in successful movies. So there are definitely times where movies have an accidental midpoint without anyone trying to make a <laughs> midpoint or, you know, exactly. whatever, like like certain things that people did because they, you know, had seen movies and knew what felt. <laughs> sure. Good. Yeah. I wonder sometimes if there's like an LFTS effect in our society right now. If, you know, Michael's channel got too big and when we, when, when, when we notice the checkboxing, <laughs> the checkbox effect, is it too many LFTS viewers are like getting the lesson, but not getting the execution right. Or <laughs> things like Michael, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not Michael's that I want all of that on me. <laughs> yeah, putting the weight of the world on your shoulders, Michael. <laughs> Talking about how, yeah, things feel kind of loose and not planned. This movie in general feels almost like a simulation to me, like a real-time simulation Mm. of what this experience would be like Mm. if you were a trucker in space and this happened. And I think watching the movie in that way, it reminds me of there was a video game that came out several years ago called called Alien Isolation. Mm -hmm. And that is also kind of a simulation game where it's just kind of a real time. You actually do have to be incredibly quiet and careful and slow, or else if you make one noise, the alien will get you. And, and so it's a very like difficult, tedious experience, but incredibly stressful and tense Mm -hmm. the entire time. Trisha, we installed it on your uh, computer for you. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. All I've heard about VR. this game is how terrifying yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I love that this movie captures that simulation feeling. And it, and it happens from early on. But yeah, like you're saying, before the alien arrives, these are just real blue collar people actually just talking and like talking to each other as if they're not people in a movie, but just people we like stumbled into a room already going and and a lot of scenes don't have like an introduction to the scene is we don't we don't come in on their breakfast with like a hello good morning like i am this character i am this character Mm -hmm. we're just kind of thrown into a garble of crosstalk and conversation so the movie announces very early on it's not really interested in doing 
a classical Hollywood thing of like orienting you to this person as the protagonist. This is the love interest. It's just now nah, like cameras planted. Here's a bunch of people mm-hmm. just doing their thing. We are along for almost a documentary experience here. And, mm-hmm. and it signals that very early. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I really like the, what you identified there, Alex, the, the simulation aspect of it. Cause I think actually the last time I watched the movie, uh, cause I didn't rewatch it for this cause I've seen it so many times, but I think like a year or two ago, I watched several of the movies because I don't know if you remember this phase of the writing, Alex, but when Alex and I were writing our screenplay, part of what we would do was just like pick a starting point and then simulate like, what would the characters do realistically? Like if mm-hmm. given these, like the scenario, what would happen? What would be the mm-hmm. course of events? And I think it is really true that like, that's kind of what's, what is special to me about Alien is it just like I'm I buy it. It feels realistic moment to moment. What the characters are doing and how they're reacting feels honest. But the the constraints, the situation they find themselves in is just so limiting in terms of what they can do. And that's where all this pressure comes from. Trisha, you mentioned like all vibes, no plot. I, I, I do think there is something to like you're saying. The script is obviously very sparse. But you bring in Ridley Scott, this crazy director, like crazy attention to detail and visuals, casting of the people is all, you know, none of them are like big famous actor people. It's like Sigourney Weaver's like first movie, basically, yeah. right? Uh, and so like, you know, the acting style is very like grounded and authentic and realistic as we're talking about. You have these crazy designs from H.R. Giger uh, and just like all, all of so much of the style is where the the psychology manipulation happens. And I think the script does everything it needs to to set up that context, set up the the place they're trapped in, do enough character work. You know, you hear Parker and Brett talking about, like, I think we need a bigger cut when we get back. And, like, Mm -hmm. like, from that little bit of banter, you get it. Like, you don't have a deep understanding of these characters, but you pretty much understand how they all work. So there's enough of all these elements within just like this beautiful coat of paint everywhere else that like really amplifies the kind of more basic like script fundamentals that are beneath it all. And I I do feel like the reason this cast of characters works so well is they do feel very distinct and they, they do have different kind of archetypal roles. You know, Tom Skerritt, like as Dallas, he, he's such an interesting leader. He's like the first in command, but he's kind of like tired sometimes and kind of like, I don't want to be doing this. And you've got Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, who's like the person who probably should be in charge, who Mm -hmm. actually knows the regulations is thinking two steps ahead is, is wanting to not cut corners and, you know, do everything right. Um, constantly being in this like frustrated position of not having the authority. You've got the blue collar guys who are like doing the real work down below who like aren't getting the same pay as everybody else, but they're literally required to get the ship off the ground. Uh, and, and then you've got Lambert, uh, just what a great character she is of just like the person who's like just saying what we're all thinking all the time and probably reacting the way most humans would react to all the situations she finds herself in. Um, it's just a great, it's a great cast of characters that, that feel just very real and believable. Like you said, Michael, like you're starting the simulation here with these people and this is exactly how I would expect them to react and to behave given the circumstances. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also leads into um, Seth Brock asked us on Patreon, like what our thoughts are on the protagonist situation. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's like this movie is sort of you can't not watch this movie without knowing that it's it's Corny Weaver, right? She's the mm-hmm. she's the alien lady from all the alien movies, right? Like, <laughs> um, and uh, but I, I feel like if you ask someone like who could watch this movie blind and halfway through, like who's the protagonist of this movie? I, I think they would either not have an answer or have different answers or whatever. And for all the reasons you just said, Alex, it's like we the the first person we see is Kane and he becomes the host of the alien. So like he is pretty like integral to the, to the first half of the movie. And then as you're saying with Brett and Parker, like they're, we want a bigger cut. It's like, Oh, they have a, they have a desire. Like nobody else has a desire in this movie other than survive basically. Right. Like once Mm -hmm. it becomes that it's like, Oh, they have like, they're the underdogs, right. They have something that they want. Um, And then Ripley is not like hidden in the shadows or anything. She is also making choices. and, And, but like, you could, I think that she has like, I don't know, three character traits or something through like this entire movie. Um, and uh, so I just think it's a really interesting way to construct. It's a way, to, interesting way to construct a movie where the characters are going to die one by one because you don't know who's going to survive. You assume the right. captain of the ship, Dallas, played by the biggest actor, you know, first credited person. Like, sure, that's going to probably be someone who at least is one of the survivors at the end. Right. Um, and uh, but, yeah, I like, you know, if it's something like Halloween, it's like you have here's your main character. Right. And and that character is probably going to survive to the end of the movie. This movie is just anything can happen. And I think that's really, really neatly constructed, whether whether on purpose or not. I was actually thinking about that this time watching it, you know, putting myself in the mindset of somebody who had never seen, you know, a Sigourney Weaver movie before. And there's a scene where she's kind of like getting the shuttle ready or something. And there's the kind of the cat scare. And I could see that being like, oh, here's the scene where they're going to kill off this character. Like, Mm. obviously, she's alone. There's something moving. Like, this is the scene. And it's fun to to remember that sometimes that like people didn't know she was the survivor. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like I didn't. I think I knew oh, really? Sigourney yeah. Weaver is like, well, she's mm. like the Ghostbusters like woman, but she's also in this movie. <laughs> and yeah, I, I think it is really effective in that, that meta way, as you're pointing out, Brian, where it, it, the movie isn't signaling to you any of those movie things that make you be like, okay, I, I know that these characters will be around this long. And so I feel safe and comfortable with that. You don't feel safe and comfortable really with any of it. And like you're saying, uh, Kane does feel like a point person at the beginning, but then he's mm-hmm. like taken out by the thing. Dallas is like, well, he's the captain. Then Dallas gets killed. Like there is a lot of kind of what would be subverting expectations, except the movie doesn't even feel like it's trying to, right, exactly. Right. Trying to give you expectations. Alien was revolutionary in 1979. The concept of truckers in space executed as an elevated horror film had never been done before. But selling studios on the idea was a difficult process, partially because when execs heard the pitch of an alien monster movie, they pictured some person running around in a silly rubber costume. They couldn't visualize the movie they were being pitched until they saw the illustrations by H.R. Giger. Then they got it. The right visual, the right music cue, the right sound effect can make all the difference in conveying your idea to someone. But if you're not H.R. Giger, where can you turn to find a way to clearly communicate your ideas in a cost-effective way? Storyblocks is a royalty-free stock library that makes it possible for creators to keep up with the growing demands for modern video content, so you can bring all your stories to life and stop sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Unlike traditional stock sites that limit content with a pay-per-clip model, Storyblocks gives you unlimited downloads so you can create more. 
They have images and illustrations, audio and sound effects, and high-quality video and video templates. And Storyblocks has a selection of flexible subscriptions, so you can focus on creating instead of worrying about budget. To check out Storyblocks and sign up for their unlimited all-access plan, head to storyblocks.com slash beyondthescreenplay. Once again, that's storyblocks.com slash beyondthescreenplay. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks to Storyblocks for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. I do think, though, that there's like a an antagonism between Ripley and Ash mm-hmm. that is kind of like a through line, right? Yes. The character relationships aren't super distinct. Like, what does Ripley think about Lambert? <laughs> I don't know. You know, like, what does, like... What does Brett think about Ash? A lot of that stuff is just like not even concerned, you know, in the screenplay or not even addressed at all. Um, But one of the through lines to the dialogue at the very least is an antagonism between Ripley and Ash, where as the as the situation starts to unfold and and it's even before they go down to the planet. Right. Um, There's this like Ripley seems to to understand that. Ash isn't quite with them. And so whenever she's like responding to Ash, she's like, can you give me more information than that? And he's like, nope. And she's like, hmm. Hmm. Um, There's, she's signaling to us that something isn't right there, but that's one of the few relationships where we get that, like, this is going to turn into a thing. So it's, it is placing breadcrumbs there where we understand that something is going to happen between Ripley and Ash because there's a push and pull. There's real conflict. Whereas so much of the rest of this, the conflict doesn't feel like it's building toward anything. It's not consequential, right? Like Parker's really concerned about his bonus, but I'm not at any point ever going like, oh man, I wonder if that's ever going to come to a head. Like, I don't think that anything's going to happen on the ship about the bonus, right? But Ripley's distrust of Ash, I think, is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it comes into really sharp focus there when he disobeys the her order, right? Where she's like, I absolutely will not let you in. And he lets them in. That to me is the first clear, like, here is your hero. She knows mm-hmm. what's happening. Like, and it's pretty much from that point, which I think about at the 30-minute mark or a little bit, a little bit later, because it kind of has a long first act. Um it's probably more at the 40 minute mark, but like, it's right there where I'm just like, Ripley's my girl. Like, I know, I know what's mm. like, who's going to make it out of this movie. And it's the person who asserts themselves, who seems to have a grasp on what's going on and is willing to, um, you know, put herself at odds with the other crew members because she believes in something. And so just having a character that like is willing to dig in their heels where literally nobody else is really like... Um, even Ash, the way that he like digs in his heels is very slimy and shifty and you never really feel like Ash is arguing with anybody, but he's just kind of like, well, well, it's, it's feeding him oxygen. So I guess we we could kill him. I don't know. Um, A little stoic (laughs) about everything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, well, 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 I mean, we all could have died and you're like, what? Um, but it doesn't, it, again, it's Ripley that has a position. And I think that that is the signal that this is our protagonist. The protagonist, most protagonist stuff she does is exactly what you're talking about, which yeah. is like deciding not to open the door uh, when the facehugger is in the room and like that kind of stuff. Right. But that's also a POV thing now that I think about it. Like you could be 
on Dallas, right? Being like, please open the door, please open the door. And like, she's just this voice from the other side being like, no, I'm sorry, I can't. It's against the rules. But we're on her for the most of it, right. you know, and we're on her being like, no, 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 you, we can't, you know, and, and it's just little things like that, that it's like, yeah, she's maybe, you know, if everyone was equal parts protagonist, she's got that extra 10% or something over everyone else. Yeah. I remember watching it this time, the scene where she actually goes up and they're kind of alone in the, is it in the medical bay where he's looking at the weird, like chicken embryo yeah. looking thing? Mm. <laughs> um, when she confronts Ash, like that is where it really clicked in for me of like, oh, this is like, this movie's going now because right. it's not just vibes in this moment. This is a scene and yeah. it's a, it's a real push pull in that scene where she's trying to probe him and get like, what is actually going on here? Because you are this science officer of all people. You should be the one saying, don't, you know, don't take the freaking face sucker out of quarantine. And yet you are the person who specifically did it. What is going on here? And that's, yeah, it's always so satisfying to watch. Like we talk about and get out. It's great to have a horror movie protagonist right. who is thinking what He's we're smart. thinking. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's just like, she never behaves or acts in a way that is dumb or kind of behind the curve. She's ahead of the curve. She's thinking about all the options and she's, she's speaking for us and what we would want to have happening. And uh, it's just a good, good lesson of just, you know, you have smart people in your horror movies but have obstacles in the way. Like she has real obstacles of you know, lack of seniority when Dallas is overriding her or, you know, robot strong could kill you <laughs> in another scene. <laughs> yep. But yeah, like you can have a really smart horror movie protagonist and still have them find themselves in mortal danger because of really good obstacles put in their way. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and so, yeah, I want to make sure we talk about creature design and the alien but mm. but i think the thing that we're also kind of circling around here is that the alien isn't the only source of tension or conflict right. or danger yes. which i think does yeah. kind of get like forgotten in some ways and it is like we're saying there's this ash tension once dallas is gone there's a little bit of like a power dynamic there's yep. a really fascinating section in the behind the scenes that i think is probably like a pretty well-known a uh, little story about, you know, the, the power dynamics even between the actors. And so the actor who was playing Parker uh, was, you know, kind of all of them weren't super into Sigourney Weaver was sort of the vibe that the the documentary of like they were doubting, like, is she good? Like, that? I don't know. Basically, there's She's a lot the youngest of member of the cast. Right. By a lot. And, yeah. and so there was a lot of like Jealousy. animosity. <laughs> Veronica Cartwright thought that she was cast in the role of Ripley and didn't yeah. realize she wasn't until she like got to the the thing. <laughs> uh, anyway, but so there, there's that scene where Ripley's kind of taking charge and telling them what to do. And uh, the actor played Parker just like refused to do it and was like pressuring her and just like, wouldn't like, no, like we're going to do this until I'm convinced by your performance that you are in charge. And ultimately she did it and yelled it and he did it and, and he, he bought it. But, um, Anyway, just like there, there was real tension on the set making it. Uh, but I feel like between these characters also of like, no, this is a true power struggle. This is a survival situation of the craziest kind. And that's going to bring out extreme um, personalities and actions and all these things that bubble to the surface while the the blood of the alien is <laughs> bubbling through the hull of the ship. Oh, yeah. look at that. Well, I mean, that is one of the most memorable things 
from this movie from the first time I watched it is just the rawness of the performances in so many moments where just the desperation and the fear becomes so primal and people just kind of revert to like, you know, kind of just animal selves in just total desperation and horror. Uh, I love when horror movies can, can draw those performances out of actors because that is that is like the purest expression of this thing horror movies are getting at, which is like all of our ego, all of our kind of, I don't know, our strength as humans, as intelligent beings is, is stripped away. And we're just like a terrified animal fighting another animal. And I just, I love movies that feel this raw because <laughs> man, especially yeah, Veronica Cartwright's performance as Lambert, like this is just such a classic performance in my mind of just total paralyzed fear. <laughs> I love her. I literally just watched the version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers that she's in. She plays mm. the wife of like a young Jeff Goldblum in that movie, the, the Donald Sutherland version. Uh, anyway, really, that in itself is a really interesting movie um, that borrows some. It's also like a body horror thing um, from the 70s. So very fascinating. But no, she's amazing. All this is just saying, yeah, the the movie being so determined not to tell us more about the characters also, I think, like, allows them to kind of just be stripped down to, like, animals, right? Trying to survive. Right. And, like, right. they're not high-minded. They're not philosophers. They're not here to, like, right. right, explore something or, like, they have this, you know, very whatever. They're not here to expound on the wonders of anything. They're just – they just are, you know, these very, very normal people. And so – the movie absolutely not wanting to tell us anything else about that makes them just relatable on like, these are humans in a bad situation and the blank, you know, the blank slateness of them makes them relatable. And something you just said reminded me of a thought I had watching it, which is in a lot of ways, it's showing how the blue collar side of the ship, you know, versus kind of like the white collar scientists leadership you know, totally. positions like they're the ones calling out constantly. Like, why don't you just freeze him? Like, why isn't he freezing him? Just put him in a freezer and we'll freeze until we get home. Like, why are you trying to like pull up? Like, mm. and nobody's answering these like relevant concerns yeah. and questions. And it feels like, yeah, the, the kind of more street smart blue collar, you know, side of the crew is always like just calling out, like, maybe you should just like get rid of that thing, freeze it blow the ship up like like, let's just do (laughs) the maximalist approach to protect ourselves and it's always the kind of like high-minded you know the the ash is the ultimate kind of intellectual he's interested in the alien more than the people uh is the one screwing it all up and how satisfying is it when parker like torches ash he has this like long right ash has this long speech like the, the the longest monologue in it where Ash is like, it's a perfect organism. You don't understand this and this and science and discovery and blah, blah, blah. And then they're just like, great, goodbye. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. They just, they just we burn We don't him. care. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for characters that, like we said, are not super 
um, explored and who they are. It's like, we do have this whole spectrum of, like you said, right. uh, you know, someone like Parker, who's just like, let's go hit it with a rock. Let's go, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then to someone like Ash is like, no, no, we have to do the most. I don't care about human life. You know, like literally they're about to kill the thing after John hurts t- chest and Ash is like, don't, don't touch it. Right. It's like, that's oh, the moment makes where me so angry. <laughs> yeah. But then even, even between those two extremes you have, as we were talking about uh, Ripley and Dallas, right. Just this sort of like, like, no, I don't quite agree with that. And that's, that's just great character design where even without yeah. your characters being super well-defined, just have a situation, have two characters disagree about how to handle it. Scene. <laughs> like, yep. you did movie. It. <laughs> Conflict. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, yeah, and so so then you add in this terrifying, yep. horrifying, disgusting, beautiful creature that is the xenomorph alien, uh, and just like in every life stage of it the design so is incredible it's like i was just amazing. like the egg like watching okay. the egg again mm. where it's like it there's that moment where like the light shines through it and the little thing inside like ripples like like that imagery is still like kind of unsurpassed i haven't seen i don't know it's just it's too good <laughs> like and and the fact that it has life stages and it, it it feels like a force of nature in the in the way that Jurassic Park treated dinosaurs seriously. This movie is treating alien life very seriously and thoughtfully, and with way more detail uh, and attention to like biology than one would ever expect. This is one of those movies where, and I don't know if I can think of many examples where. If the performances were not as good, if the writing was like a little bit more heavy handed or some of the things we're talking about that it isn't or whatever, would it still be iconic? Like maybe it wouldn't be a masterpiece, but would it Mm -hmm. still be iconic? And I think the answer is yes. Like if everything else was 10% worse, but the design was still what it is, I think we would still be watching this movie and remember it because the design is doing so much and carrying so much of the horror and the like texture of this, like, yeah, very primal, just, uh, I don't know, like nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would hope so. Um, But I do also think that there is this, relationship between the design and the direction um so uh, like obviously the design of everything in this movie is incredible and and the actual production of it right the fact they were able to to build these things but there is also 
the the issue of like you know there there are a couple shots in this movie where things feel a little bit you know like oh that's uh-huh. a guy in a suit walking or that's like a little puppet on a on a metal stick you know screaming at everyone um, <laughs> or the, the part where he's kind of floating along for a minute right like, kind yeah of that's dancing. the yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but like but there you know it's I don't know ten seconds of this movie or something like right. that where where you kind of takes you out of it but the rest of the time it's like you're own you're only seeing it for a second and you're only seeing it from this angle and we're, we're cutting and everything. So like there is that suspension of disbelief thing where if you just had very clearly a man in a suit, just sort of chugging down the hall, chasing after, you know what I mean? Like checking his watch or whatever, like then the design, it could still be awesome, but it's just, falls apart right you stop you stop being in awe of it um and you could argue that you know later alien movies maybe did better or worse versions of that you know alien resurrection the like baby hybrid alien is uh is, is pretty rough even though it looks really scary um and uh but but like yeah that, i think that there is something to be said for that too which is that you have to uh, you have to know how to use it. And I, and I think that like this movie does a really good job of you're never quite sure how it's moving and where it's coming from. What and it even never, looks like. Right. Yeah. You never quite see the whole thing at once. I mean, kind of like Cloverfield does that a little bit too, where it's like you never quite just get one shot of like the entire thing at once. The closest you get is like one, one second at the end. And even then it's only from one angle. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that goes a long way, too. But obviously, it all starts with with H.R. Giger's design and just the, the way that this movie looks. And there's a reason there's a whole franchise around it. Like, that's the reason. Right. It's not just because this movie is good. It's because we couldn't not have more xenomorphs in the world. Right. Well, but to your point, Brian, like the lighting is also part mm-hmm. of the look like, you know, the the way the eggs are lit with that amazing blue kind of laser fog machine like (laughs) like that is just like that is so cool and iconic if that was a brightly lit room or kind of like a poorly lit room that scene would not feel at all like what it feels like and and so many of the most iconic you know finale scenes in this movie involve like strobing lights and you know the different parts going off and on and uh moving through hallways with fog blowing out left and right into the light and so it's just that is yeah, every aspect of production, including cinematography, the lighting, is part of the look. It's you know, it's not just the alien itself. It's the way it's shot, it's the way it's lit, um, and that that is all. I think the franchise has to like if something feels wrong in the Alien franchise or not as good, it's because I think it's failing on one of those levels. Because you can yeah, you can copy and paste the Alien design, but if it's if it's not lit in this iconic way, it starts to mm-hmm. feel cheap and sad and not what we want. Right. Well, and I think there's the, you know, the famous Jaws example, right? Where you like, you know, they couldn't really show the shark and that made it that much more scary because it's more in your imagination and blah, blah, blah. They do end up showing a lot of the alien in this movie, but it is doled out in a pretty slow way. And I think that there is also a because it's it's done in this kind of slow, methodical way, like like none of these sequences really need to function like action sequences. Like there aren't like fights or like big escapes. It's I'm going to go look for a cat in this weird ass room where there's chains and dripping (laughs) things. 
it's a very Blade Runner room. It's like mm-hmm. it's it one of those it's one of those sets like in Blade Runner where it's like I can't even tell is this a room like what is that right? But yep. it looks cool. What is this <laughs> yeah. space? But but it's a build up to like a moment, and that's when like the alien gets you. And I feel like you're right. you're being taught what the alien can and can't do kind of implicitly. And I think that's an important part. You know, I, we mentioned we did an episode on Nope, and there's a lot of things that we talked about in Nope, but one of the things that bothered me in Nope, uh, to do this in a not-spoiler way, I think it's important for you to, as a filmmaker, <laughs> clearly convey to the audience, if you have a creature in your film, what it can and can't do so that the audience mm. knows what it should be afraid of and mm-hmm. you know what what the rules are of the engagement that you're watching and i think alien does it in a very implicit way and you know we've said like animal like it, it's not like this is a this is a creature that can just run out in the open and start kicking people and do cgi like fight scenes with people it's like hunting it has to it kind right. of lures people it attacks from the shadows so there's that makes it scarier, I think, to know that it's it has weaknesses, but it knows what its weaknesses are, and it has a methodology to capitalize on its strengths when hunting, and it is hunting for you. I think it's really powerful. And like you're, yeah, you're being hunted by it. So once you see it, like it's too late. Like you're done. You're not. Right. You, he's, it's not surprised by you being there. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. right. right. And I think it is important that we're introduced to it in its other forms also Mm. because they do so much for the like psychological psychosexual body horror parts Mm -hmm. of it that, that give the adult alien so much of its menace. Right. And so meeting the face hugger first, um, which is, you know, horrifying in its own way. And then the chest burster is, like probably the most graphic death we see on screen, the whole movie, Mm -hmm. right? Like in terms of actual like blood gore, we get a really clear look at the chest burster when it comes out. Um, Like it's the design of those two forms of the aliens being the alien being the first ones that we see, like we don't need to see the full image of the full grown alien to be afraid of it because we've seen these other two forms of it and those two forms of it, you know, and there's been a lot written about like the sexual aspects of like the horror. Right. Um, I read, I was reading like a film theorist today had written something um, about like, I think she called it abjection, but basically, you know, we've talked about how grotesques blur the lines between like, the idea of grotesques is the idea of the blurring of boundaries, right? Like, is something funny or is it terrifying? Does it inspire sympathy or horror? Um, and abjection is the same idea, but with the human body. It's the idea of blurring the line between your own body and something that has invaded your body or something outside of your body being in your body. Um, and so sort of all like body snatch movies are like this or like possession movies are like trading in this idea of horror. Um, and like, that's kind of what this is getting into, which is like, you know, sort of a deep psychological fear for a really good reason, right? Anything invading our body is bad, bad. (laughs) Um, and, and so like having those two invasive forms, um, be the first ones that we meet, 
Like, I don't need to know why the alien took Dallas or Brett. Like, I find that out in the director's cut. But, like, I don't need to know that to be really, really afraid of what it does when I, you know, it's just like, that's enough. We get some, there's some blood in the scene where they, they, it takes Brett. It takes Dallas without any thing whatsoever. It just jumps out and that's all we see. But because of the way that we met the alien, that mileage just goes all the way to the end of the movie to make us very scared. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's a really, really good point. And I'm trying to, I was trying to think of, are there any other movies where you kind of meet the monster as a, as a baby and like track mm. it over it's a life cycle. And I mean, uh, Rosemary's baby, the omen. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that counts. Well, and, and Jurassic park, we meet a raptor as a baby, right? You get to see, you get to see dinosaurs in different life stages, which helps that understanding of like, Oh, they, they are a creature that lives and they are a fully realized, but they're not more dangerous, like, or dangerous in a different way, just as dangerous, but little, I feel like that's the one thing about this too, is that the little ones, especially the the face hugger, it's like it's insectoid, right? It's got too many legs, it moves too fast, mm. all of this stuff. And then the little little one also, the chestburster, is just terrifying in its own way. Yeah, I think it's I'm gonna call it the uncomfortable valley, which is if a monster is like too out there, like then it doesn't right. mean anything to you, right? Your brain doesn't even process it. But then sometimes it's just like, oh no, that's just clearly a man in a suit, or that's just clearly like CG, or that's just like a dog with a horn on it, whatever. Like, you know, something where it just <laughs> your your brain just kind of goes like, oh, that's familiar. And for some reason I was thinking of the the bear in Annihilation um mm. as just being like one of the no one of the thanks. times that yeah, yeah, one of the but like from recent media, one of the times I can right. think like it just felt the right amount of wrong right. where it yeah. was like right. my brain was like, I understand what this animal sort of is, but it's not doesn't look right. And it doesn't sound right at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, no. yeah. And, and, you know, the sound design is like loud and, and scary and stuff, too. But like I, I really like I think that that is exactly what I was talking about earlier is I feel like I've seen too many times where I'm just like, oh, that's that creature or whatever is just clearly a person, right? And and there are times where people are really good, um, have really studied movement. So they know how to make every part of their body like not feel quite right. Like zombie walking dead or something like that, where it's like you you have to go to like zombie school to learn how to not look like a person when you're shuffling down the street. Um, but I feel like for every one of those, there are 10 examples of just like, oh, I see the person through there or I see the CG that's not like terribly well done or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, Alien is, as you mentioned, Trisha, like all of the the different versions of the creatures in Alien uh, all just feel like wrong in the best way. <laughs> And as you pointed out earlier, Alex, it's interesting that as the alien is picking off everybody, they're being, the characters are being reduced from like, we are regular people doing regular people things to like their own primal forms, right? right. They get like sweaty, dirty, yeah. like yeah. <laughs> just they get like more and more, um, Primal, I guess. Uh, they they turn into animals themselves, and then the the cinematography, like they're shot that way, right? Where mm -hmm. like I think about Ripley, you know, kind of like crawling around at the end, and the way that Sigourney Weaver's face is like, oh my god, you know, kind of trying to hold it together, but is just being put 
into the most raw form that she could possibly be in at that point. Um, and I think that that also contributes to the horror, not just because we see the aliens effect on them, but because they're becoming less human themselves in a way, or the intellectual way that we think about ourselves as being better than other animals. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why it was so affecting also just because I was a child. But when I first saw it, like the, the sheer like embodiment of animalistic terror I like fully understood and saw embodied in this movie. And it made me like understand myself in a better way, which was if I'm ever alone on a spaceship with an (laughs) alien that is hunting me, I'm just going to off myself. I don't think I can deal with the stress (laughs) of trying to get away because it's just just, too much. I tried to play Alien Isolation. I bought it twice because I was like, I play I tried to play it on PlayStation. No, I'm not going to do it. I'll come back a couple years later. I'll play it on PC. Yeah. No, I can't. I cannot play that game. It's too terrifying to just be, it is you <laughs> and this alien alone and you have to survive. And it's like, no, it's not. Survival is not worth it in that situation. I like the idea that you bought it twice because the first time you called them and had them delete it from your account. You're like, <laughs> yeah, you're like, I can't physically throw this digital game out. Wipe you please? from my PS. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, terrifying. Um, okay, well, so before we... Go to lessons. We got some questions about the Alien franchise in general. And Brian, I know you have some thoughts. If people don't want like spoilers, maybe like jump ahead, you know, three or four minutes and then come back. Um, But yeah, so Alien as a franchise, which is really fascinating. Um, Let's talk about it briefly. Yeah, for sure. Um, One of the questions was from Jay Handel or... Or Jean Dill, um, that was, you know, just sort of about the distant hills thing that I've brought up before of like things are more exciting sometimes when they're not explained. So like the space jockey being the biggest example of that, like what the hell is that thing? Right. We're not going to tell you in this movie. Um, but I also so it's like arguably would this movie be better or would this franchise be better if like nobody ever made another alien movie and all you ever had was this, right? But I just feel like there's so much here that I'm so glad that they that they really ran with it and were able to explore more. Um, and I just think it's really fascinating how, for better or for worse, each movie has really just not tried to make the same movie again, you know? And, and I think that that's sure. a testament to, to how interesting this world is, that it's not just the xenomorph, it is everything else around it, um, that, you know, they made three more Jaws movies and it was just, there's a shark, like, <laughs> now it's in 3D, <laughs> now it's personal, you know, but it was just like, well, what else do you do? Like, that's it, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I think I really appreciate Aliens for as as different tonally as it is. Um, the fact that not only did it say, hey, there's more aliens, right? It takes away a little of the mystique of the creature, but it's like, well, well, sure, that's kind of a no brainer that that's the next thing is what happens when there's a bunch. Who do you need to fight a bunch? You need an army, basically. Um, but it the fact that it made Ripley a mother and like really kind of that that's a theme that gets explored that some people have said is kind of a theme in the first movie, but it really dives into it. You know, Ripley is not written as a male in the first movie or not written as a female in the first movie per se. But then uh, by the second movie, it's like, well, now we have this female protagonist. What do we do? Oh, let's explore like motherhood through here. But then even things like the corporation really bringing them into it, uh, Wayland yutani Corporation, and then androids like you could tell how much Cameron was like what are the ideas in this first movie how can we actually explore on them but let's not just do it again right let's take let's have Bishop be the anti-ash but of course Ripley doesn't know that um 
And then you get into three and four, which are sort of like for as messy as they were, I also appreciate that they just tried different things. Like Alien 3 is famously a mess and Fincher walked off of it. But there's a lot of interesting ideas there. If you watch the assembly cut, which is the cut that like people tried to make the Fincher version after he walked away. Um, like there's there's a lot about a lot of conversations about faith and survival and what it means to be alive and everything. There's a new evolution of the xenomorph because it like impregnated a dog or whatever. But um, <laughs> but like so it kind of starts feeling like two different movies where it's like these really interesting character moments and then like be horror, like here are the workers in the hallway and they get they get chomped. Like, um but it started this thing of like throwing the last movie out, which three and four both did, uh, throwing the last movie under the bus. So to uh, the aliens ends with like Hicks and Ripley and Newt are together and Ripley saved Newt, which is like, you know, character arc, all this kind of stuff. And then three is like Hicks and Newt died in the thing. And now she's just on this place with these guys like what? And then. The movie ends with her sacrificing herself so that the corporation can't get the alien, you know, the the uh, queen embryo inside her. And then it, it resurrections like there's more aliens and we cloned Ripley. <laughs> like what? So it just sort of kept feeling like like not really bothering to um, continue with the story. It just was like, what's the new idea? But then even resurrection was like there's an alien hybrid now that sort of recognizes her. And it's like. It didn't work, but like, that's an interesting idea. That's an interesting take. And then now finally, uh, let's pre pretend aliens versus predator or alien versus predator doesn't exist. Um, but then finally Ridley Scott comes back in and now he wants to explore the origin of it. Right. And it's like, do we need that? Was anybody like wondering where the aliens came from? And, and like, I'm not a huge fan of Prometheus as a movie, but he did this really interesting thing with like the engineers and they create all life on earth, whatever, you know, and then so like some of it is sort of like, oh, this thing kind of hybridized with that thing. And that's where this, you know, I don't really care. But then there's other stuff where it's like, oh, you're adding this whole other interesting lore into the world. And like that, that's kind of a cool idea. And then I only saw Alien Covenant once, but I feel like it was just a slasher movie that then also tried to do some interesting stuff with Michael Fassbender's character. Right. But, um, but yeah, like, so I don't know that I needed like space jockeys explained or anything, but I, I just, I appreciate that every single movie has tried in some way to say, what is another idea in this world? Right. Cause it could have been so easy to just have every movie be whoops, there's an alien and we got to survive. And they all are that obviously, cause otherwise they're not really what you want from an alien movie, but they all sort of like, just like expand on the lore. And it almost makes it feel like more of like a, uh, like Lord of the Ringsy type thing, right? That you can kind of geek out about and like think about the timeline and stuff than other franchises where it feels like it's just coming back to come back to the same thing every time. And now there's, you know, now there's two of them or now there's whatever. And, and yeah, so I just appreciate this franchise for being kind of weird and out there and, and trying different stuff every time. Yeah. We talked about aliens in a whole episode and it mm -hmm. was really fun to dive into all of the really fascinating choices that that movie makes. Um, so yeah, definitely. And I would talk about it again because I just really love it. But Yeah, it's a really fascinating franchise. I actually weirdly really enjoy Alien Covenant is where I've come around on that because like you mm -hmm. said, it's just like, you know, what, we're just going to do this for this one. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Why not? Yeah, you did it. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, for that reason, Mom, I'm like, you know, yeah, keep it going. Put more aliens and more permutations of places and things and genres and let's see what happens. 
your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, why don't we move to lessons? What lessons are we going to take away from Alien? Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. I just really appreciate how this movie skips over a lot of scenes that you normally would think would be obligatory. Like a lot of times in this movie just skips from, uh, we just discovered something about this alien uh, or, you know, it got out or something. And then it just cuts to them already searching for it in a very methodical way, uh, it, right in the, in the thick of it. There's not a scene of like planning yeah. and like, let's talk about like how we want to look for the alien. Like they just skip ahead. There is in the script. It got cut. Oh, mm. interesting. In the shooting script that I read today, there is a scene where they're like, Art, can you make some flamethrowers? And he's like, yes, I can. He's like, can you make a thing? Why? Yes, I will. It'll take a little while. And then there is a sexual encounter between Ripley and Dallas. Mm. Oh, in the shooting oh. script that oh. got cut, which I want to come back to in my lesson. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> so there was they cut it yeah. smart. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like and there there is some basic planning at some moments in this movie. But I was just surprised how often the film felt comfortable just throwing me into their next like move without explaining it to me ahead of time. And it was just so nice because I just felt like there's so many movies you watch where like horror movies where you feel like you're kind of like, like I know you can, you can skip to the action, skip to the meat of the scene and I'll, I'll catch up. I'll like, I can connect the two plus two. You know, I saw the information they learned. Mm-hmm. I can guess what you do with that information is you do this and just show me that as opposed to like obligatory, you know, expository speeches in between these set pieces. And I just love how sparse, and yeah, just kind of how intelligently it treats its audience. It's just, it just is like, you know what? We're going to skip ahead. Now they're doing the next thing. And if you're a smart person and they're smart people, you'll get why they are doing this because they just learned this. And it's just really refreshing to see a movie skip over those scenes, which otherwise are kind of just a drag. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is worth saying, as you were kind of alluding to, Trisha, the, the first cut of this movie was like three hours and eight minutes long or something. Mm. So, uh, good editing. Yeah. Good editing. Cutting an hour. Yeah. yeah. Another hour of this movie, I think, would not be good. Yeah. yeah. Right. It should also be noted um, that the 
extended i think i mentioned this on aliens but the extended cut of this movie that's out there is not the director's cut the theatrical cut is the director's cut period yeah. uh same with gladiator both movies ridley scott just said like here's some more stuff if you want to watch a longer version of the movie this is not the, the director's cut as opposed to kingdom of heaven where it very much the director's cuts the director's cut right. so just to be noted because i feel like alien for being a slow movie already it's 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 too much if you try to watch like here's them walking down the hall to get from that room to that room you know you don't need it well, and, and like you said, like it, it's a slow movie, but it feels like the moments that are slow are intentional right. and our vibes and our mood. We don't like that's where I want to slow down. I don't mm-hmm. want to slow down because we have to just exposit at each other for five minutes about the situation. Um, and it just it just dispenses with a lot of that, which is very refreshing. Yeah. You know, I've never been able to get near a cat since that time I was 12. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Awesome. Cool. Trisha, what's your lesson? Sure. I think it's fascinating that it's pretty much impossible to read about this movie without reading about the sort of themes of like gender and sexuality and what the movie says or doesn't say about feminism and, um, you know, the character of Ripley and all of this stuff. Um, And I think that that's because there are very few other themes in it that are really discernible, right? There's, it doesn't comment on like human nature very much. And in the dialogue, it, it comments very little on any particular theme. Um, like survival is not a theme. <laughs> um, and, and so I think it's, you know, very famously the characters were written originally, uh, to be all sort of gender neutral, if you will. Um, although I've read that Dan O'Bannon was originally like, but yeah, you can make some of them women, I guess. There was like a footnote on one of the drafts that was like, yeah, yeah, all of these could be women. like race and gender. Don't worry about it. Just like whatever, which I, I think is interesting in and of itself. Um, but I think by making Ripley and Lambert women, you are embedding a theme into this movie, right? Because the thing is movies and especially sci-fi movies are about us, right? That's what they're about our society because they're made within this world that we live in. (laughs) And so the fact that the world that we live in, um, we deal with patriarchy and depression. Those themes are going to come through the minute that you introduce a gender dynamic into this script. Um, and I, obviously we've touched a little bit on like the sexual horror aspects of the creature design. Those were already embedded in here. And then making the survivor a woman, I think is also really interesting. Um, I read, I think I was reading that the Bechdel test was like kind of originally like cropped up or the idea of it cropped up from watching this movie. There's Mm -hmm. the scene where Lambert Mm -hmm. and Ripley talk about the creature and that's like kind of where the Bechdel test came from. It's like, here they are, they're doing it. Um, But I, I wonder like, what was this movie about before Ripley Mm. was a woman? Um, And I just want to like praise that choice uh, and just highlight the fact that we see the comments um, about our world and about like who we are as men and women or people who live within a society that structures us that way um, reflected in the, that decision. It's really fascinating. I was reading the script and there's a lot, one of the things that was taken out of the script is that there's a lot of... Um, antagonism between Parker and Ripley in the script. And it's specifically gendered, 
where Parker's mm. always like, that bitch is doing this wrong, you know, whatever. And he's specifically commenting on her um, and her gender. And there's one where there's a line, too, where he makes a really crude joke um, toward her. And maybe this is in the movie and I can't hear it because the sound is mixed the way it is. <laughs> he makes a crude joke towards Lambert. Lambert. Yeah, I do not remember that one. I checked out of curiosity because I, I think that is like the only mention reference at all to gender in the entire theatrical cut of the movie. And I checked and that's not even in the shooting script. Uh, So that's probably just like an ad lib line on the day or something like that. So everything you're saying totally right. Because like the characters have gender, they don't not have gender. Right. But the, at least the, um, the, the the dialogue and all that kind of stuff is not really interested in in commenting on that. Right. But there is more of that in the script. So that Mm -hmm. was obviously taken out on purpose, right? No one is mad at Ripley in the movie because she's a woman. They're mad at her for what, X, Y, and Z, and right. what other reason? But she is a woman, right? She is embodied, and so we see that there is a gender dynamic, regardless of it not being in the dialogue. And as I mentioned in the script, at least in the shooting script that I read, there's a sexual encounter between Ripley and right. Dallas, and that was also taken out because it was—I don't know—I assume explicit and like not in a way that supported what the eventual themes of the movie ended up emerging as. We got several questions on the Patreon about Ripley's underwear um, (laughs) and the final scene. Uh, And I I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention it. Um, And, you know, I think there's obviously something very cringy and dated about the way that that scene is shot, like the particular angles Um, that are being chosen by the filmmaker there. But overall, I think the choice is doing something thematic. It's kind of speaking into the character's survival story as a woman. Um, And as someone else already on the Patreon pointed out, um, the sexual component of the violence that that the creature enacts, I think you would actually maybe lose something if like the final encounter, she was like, you know, I don't know, like she is an alien wearing like a mech suit. Right. Um, I think you do get something, um, again, tapping into like the vulnerability of the character when you have a character without any, like the basic defensive clothes. Um, so like, I'm going to, I think I'm overall going to defend that choice as being thematic. Uh, maybe not the exact way that it's shot, but mm-hmm. <laughs> the goofy butt crack. Yeah. I overall do really <laughs> like it because I think that, you know, it's, it's obvious when you read anything about this movie, the discourse that arises about the movie's themes are all about gender and they're all about sexuality because that's all that there's left in it. Um, at the end of the day. And all of that boils down to the choice to make Ripley a woman. And the fact that you don't have to be like, it doesn't have to be like a raging feminist manifesto in the dialogue um, to be what it is. Like a lot of that was taken out because it was distracting in the dialogue and the movie speaks for itself. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think this is again, why I I think this is a really interesting behind the scenes thing to watch. Cause I think you do get a, a glimpse at all the factors that go into a movie getting made. And so like producers, yeah i forget exactly who came up with the idea of like ripley being a woman but they were sort of like yeah that that'll get us bonus points like okay sure so like there's the cynical like movie studio exec side of it there's like the artist making it there's like all these different things 
were these elements cut out like thoughtfully or was it because the studio was mad that it was three hours and eight minutes long? And like, so I think this is also a really interesting movie to think about and examine through like just the lens of like how things get made and intentionality versus like what ends up on the screen and like, does it matter? And And all of that stuff I think is mixed in with all of that and to me just makes it that much more like fascinating and interesting to kind of pick these elements apart like miraculous also yeah. sure like, all these random things happened and we have alien right <laughs> well and as you mentioned earlier i'm sure that there was sexism happening on set you know you talked about people mm-hmm. not loving sigourney weaver she was the youngest person on set. She was also one of the only women in the cast. And like, I'm sure that the antagonism was not, not about that, you know, um, even if it was just internalized misogyny. Um, but like that, that's all, it's all like kind of embedded in there. And I think it's really interesting where it emerges in the movie and where it specifically doesn't, where you otherwise might expect it. Right. Like, it's interesting that the only time in the movie anybody calls anybody a bitch, it's the Gordy Weaver calling mother that, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> this is my favorite line in the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, yeah, my lesson's about um, structure, which is, uh, you know, we've talked about like kids movies being a good way to study structure because it's usually pretty, pretty simple. But I also think like, horror movies or like a John Wick type movie or something like, like any movie that's just like, here's a very simple thing that the characters are either want or, you know, are trying to get away from or whatever. And I, it's like, there have been a couple things I've been thinking about recently and watching alien just sort of helped me put them all together. So a little of what I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm just learning what structure is for the first time. Uh, but you'll, it'll make sense by the end. Um, which is just like, I really like the way that this, um, escalates and what each act is doing and also when the movie kind of reveals itself, how long the movie takes to really reveal itself. So first act, basic introducing the world characters, central problem, et cetera. Right. And then act two a is you see the conflict start to unfold. We have the thing on board and everything, but we're still not sure what's happening, right? There's just a thing wrapped around the guy's face. Like what, what is this? You know, what's going on midpoint, like the midpoint, right? It's like <laughs> chest bursting, like, holy crap, what's going on? Suddenly now, oh, this is what this movie is. But we still don't really know exactly what's going on until Act 2B, where now baby's grown up. And then now it's like, oh, here now, finally, maybe 40 minutes before the end or something, or like, no, probably like 50 minutes before the end. Um, here's the thing. Like, here's the thing that the, that, the movie has been leading up to this whole time, but we spent a really nicely long time to get there. And then now we've done all that work, all that character work and all that story world work and everything. And now we can just, the roller coaster is at the top and we can just barrel down towards the end, right? That doesn't mean we don't have moments of dialogue or quiet moments or whatever, but it just means like, as we go along, we just get more and more, you know, the deaths happen fewer and far between. And there's, we even get a twofer at one point. Um, and then you get this like really satisfying climax. 
but it's not over. It's still in the ship. And like, here's the climax part too, you know? And I just really think it's, uh, Michael, you talked on uh, Gladiator about liking a long act one um, and uh, a long first act of a movie. And uh, I think that like, well, I think recently we also talked about movies with a short third act where it's just kind of like the third act is just does, does the third act business and doesn't linger too long on it. And I feel like watching Alien, I was like, oh yeah, this is kind of doing everything that feels like it feels really like it all comes together. You take a long first act to really just kind of settle into this world, get to know these characters, believe that this world is real. Second act is all the normal second act stuff, like midpoint. And, and here's where the actual movie is. We don't reveal until after the midpoint or like around the midpoint. Here's here's really the movie that you've been building up to this whole time. And then just boom, 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 third act, just like really driving it home and just throwing uh, everything your way, you know? And I think that obviously like, I'm sure there are other movies Die Hard or Jurassic Park or maybe even Jaws where it's like uh, not Jaws as much because the main characters survive for most of it. But characters, movies where characters are dropping off, uh, it's easy to kind of track this because you can just like ramp up, ramp up the deaths. Right. But I think romantic comedy or like a drama or anything like that, like you can all apply. You can always apply that structure where it's just like once you hit a certain point, you really reveal what the movie is and then you can just like really you know, escalate to, to get to the end. And I just think that makes, that makes it feel really exciting and, and sort of earned like, thank you for, for sitting through the first half of this movie. Now we promise it's going to be worth it. Yeah. It's the roller coaster metaphor is great. Cause it's just mm. like, there's the anticipation and the buildup and then it's just so much fun to get to go yeah. down the other side. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's really cool observation and, and yeah as i was listening to i was like yeah i want more movies like that like i think i like movies that do that and because i think it also like takes away some of that burden of like you know you paid for the alien is killing people movie and so now we have to right. do that for two hours somehow right uh right. versus right. like no save it build up to it so that you can nail it and send people out of the ride being like that was so much fun i want to go again Versus like, you know, two hours of trying to be on a roller coaster. I'm exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm yeah. tired. Yeah. Um, awesome. What's your list? So my lesson, I think I've, I've, I was trying to figure out what it was going to be. But I'm thinking about what you said at the beginning, Alex, about the simulation aspect of this movie. And I think that subconsciously, I think that named something that I kind of subconsciously took away from this movie and came to really appreciate as a horror movie um, that has like a, a clear situation. We got clear walls, clear boundaries. The, the number of options are limited. Let's take some, you know, real people. We don't need to know a ton about their backstory. That doesn't matter. We just need to know, like, in this moment, if you were meeting this person on the elevator, what do you know about them? What do you need to know about them? If you're going to be stuck with them in this environment and go. And I think that was as I alluded to earlier, uh, an exercise that I really enjoyed uh, as we were writing our script to just like see what what makes sense. Like what is a good exercise? Like what would this person do? If this person really cares about this and is really afraid of this, how would all these dominoes fall? And they don't always fall in a way that makes for, um, you know, an amazing story structure. And so that's when you have to stop and revise and and you know, do it again and well, you have it. to block off some of their roads. You have to right. make the creatures blood acid and that blocks off that road. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a really useful 
exercise, uh, and I'm glad to have been reminded of it in the talking about this because that's something that makes this movie special. And uh, yeah, I want to make sure I keep in mind moving forward. Okay, well, so uh, we're going to talk about what we've been watching recently. Before we do, quick reminder that next time we're going to be talking about Lady Bird. So head to the Patreon patrons and there will be a post waiting where you can tell us what do you want us to talk about with Lady Bird? Leave suggestions uh, and all that stuff that we will keep in mind when watching and try to address on the show. Um, yeah. So, Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Sure. So, I saw a recent movie. Um, I believe it came out in 2021. Should have looked up that year. Uh, but <clears throat> within the last year or two. And it's a film called Official Competition. It's a movie from Spain. Uh, written and directed by Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat, and starring Penelope Cruz, Antonio Banderas, and Oscar Martinez. Mm. And uh, it's a movie about people making a movie. And uh, Penelope Cruz plays this like eccentric director who is like this very visionary artistic director. And the movie is about these rival brothers. And so she casts like Antonio Banderas, who plays like a very slick, uh, famous movie star who's not known for being like a serious actor. And then she casts like a serious theater, older theater actor to play the other brother. And most of the movie is about their rehearsal process and Penelope Cruz kind of like breaking them down, (laughs) these two actors. It's really, I adore adored this movie like sounds great (laughs) it's really good it like is such a psychological trip about art and performance and acting and like also the construction of you're watching a movie about people making a movie and like the movie in in within the movie is a vanity project that was like bankrolled by this like rich guy who doesn't know anything about like art or film or anything. And he's just like, who are the best people? And they're like, well, you should hire this director. She like is winning all the awards right now and you should hire these guys or whatever. And he like, doesn't care. He's just a money guy. And it's, it's very much about the intersection of all the things that movies are. And, and like I said, it's mostly about the rehearsal process. So it's, I don't, it's just, delicious because it's just Penelope Cruz with the hugest red hair you've ever seen. She has like red hair that's been like crimped out and like is the size of her whole body. And she's just messing with these guys trying to like break them down to nothing to make them like do these performances in her film. Um, I loved it. I loved every second of it. Uh, Highly recommend official competition. Awesome. That sounds really fun. Cool. Okay. Uh, Brian, what have you been watching recently? Um, I want to quickly shout out that I uh, mentioned a couple months ago that I was on a podcast talking about Captain America's uh, flat arc. And that episode is out now. Um, it's the, the podcast is called Kill the Cat, which is best name for a podcast about screenwriting um and uh, one of our uh one of our uh, lovely patrons uh cat and her friend uh ibby are the hosts of it and we just kind of get into captain america and other inspirational movies kind of like paddington and elf and even gladiator where it's like the hero refuses to change but the world around them changes and sort of a nice counterbalance to the entire captain america iron man video we wrote which is about how 
they do change over the course of a decade. But in the first movie, especially, you know, that's that's not what's going on. Um, other than that, I watched Patriot, which is an Amazon Prime show uh, about an undercover agent who has to take a job at a piping firm in order to be granted access to countries where he wouldn't be able to go as a government agent, which is like a real thing, like like spies have to kind of get certain jobs that allow them access to countries that we're not allowed to go to. So he's doing these hit many government agency things, but he also has to be good at his job to be able to stay on the like the travel team. So he has to like give presentations, but he's like busy over here killing somebody and he has to get back in time for his presentation. He's also a folk singer uh, who writes very specific lyrics about the top secret jobs he's done because he's also a little off his rocker and kind of losing his mind because of the stress of it all. So it's all that stuff at once. Uh, It's, you know, it's, it's a comedy, but it's dark. It's sort of like darker Coen brothers, like a inside Lewin Davis, or maybe like a Fargo kind of thing where it's, where it's not like wacky, but it's, but it's just like fun, weird, dark comedy. Uh, the main character is played by Michael Dorman, who's great. But then the, some of the other cast are Terry O'Quinn, AKA John Locke from lost. Oh, yeah. He plays his, his dad and his handler, uh, Kurtwood Smith, AKA red from that 70s show is his boss in the job that he has to take. Michael Chernis, who has typecast himself, he's the quirky brother from Orange the New Black and the quirky brother-in-law from Severance. He's the quirky brother in this show, too. Uh, and the rest of the cast is great, too. And it's a weird show. It's not for everyone, but check it out. You know, give it give it an episode or two. And, and I think you'd have a pretty good sense of what the show is. Nice. Wow. Cool. OK. Alex, what about you? I went and saw Bodies, 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 the new uh, A24 uh, kind of murder mystery. How would you describe it? Yeah, kind of like teen horror horror (laughs) film. Yeah, Uh, but it's great. It was a great 95 minute, just fun ride, kind of a Gen Z dark satire whodunit murder mystery in a a house in one night. Uh, uh, Yeah, I don't want to say much more about it because it'll spoil things, but um, very sharp, fun kind of generational satire and just I, I laughed a lot and it was surprising and just just a good good naughty a24 ride so would recommend bodies 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 nice nice <laughs> definitely looking forward to that one michael yeah so i've been watching some things but i'm not going to talk about them what i'm going to talk about is that a couple weekends ago uh i had the pleasure of getting kind of like a private tour of the Autry Museum of the American West. So mm. I love the Autry. I, I had never been uh, and it's pretty cool. And so, yeah, if if you live in L.A., you might not like be super aware of all of the museums that we have. And this was one that I wasn't super aware of. Uh, and I'm not that into like Westerns and dusty things. Right. As we know. But despite <laughs> all of that, I was like, really fascinated by everything that they had in there you know the paintings and like sculptures of like modern artists and artists going back you know hundreds of years uh that whole section a whole like little mini room that was just like silent movie posters from like way back when which was really fascinating that's like stagecoach it's 150 years old that when like the museum bought it uh, they thought it was just a black stagecoach, and then they started cleaning it and repairing it, and realized there was all this like ornate paint and decoration underneath. And so, I don't know. There were just all these things that like paint like a a more tactile picture of what like 
the West was. And so like, if you like Westerns, I feel like you would just love this museum because I played Red Dead Redemption 2. And that was like kind of the framework of like, oh, this video game that I played now seeing all the stuff in real life makes me like really feel what it must have been like, like this like really old fire engine how did they design this crazy ass looking like there's pipes and all these things and pressure how did they like who thought of this this is so much more advanced than a computer uh they have like a full-size saloon bar where you can just like go up and be at the saloon you're like oh my god like i'm at a like saloon bar and then like all these crazy elaborate like gun collections of like wild bill hickok's guns and annie oakley's guns and just like maybe you know guns scary and and bad but also like fascinating just as like a a mechanical device that like you could just have in your pocket i don't know so basically it's it's a really cool museum uh that i really enjoyed it's not also just only about uh old stuff in the west they also have kind of like rotating new exhibits so the one that was there when i was there was called dress code that was just kind of about how what we wear signals so much and like the the cultural attachments that have been placed on certain like kinds of clothing so like the history of plaid is really fascinating Mm -hmm. and like the history of jeans like the one that i was taught as a kid of like oh levi's and people like miners like the 49ers like mining for gold that's where jeans were came from and it's like actually before that they were like clothes that were like bought for slaves because they were robust and like the masters then wouldn't have to like buy as many clothes for it. So like it gets into these like the really fascinating history of clothing and what like what clothing items that we still have now have meant over the different decades. Anyway, so it was really cool. I was very surprised uh, that, it, that it was right here and I had never seen it before. So highly recommend Autry Museum. If you're in L.A. or planning on going to L.A., it's pretty cool. The history of plaid sounds like something that would be like the joke book that someone gets for their birthday. It's like, <laughs> oh, thank you. But it does sound fascinating. But it's, it's that kind of thing where it's like I feel like my parents brought me to these museums, like these Southwest museums as a kid. And it was just so wasted on me. So it's like, that's a boring basket. Like, I don't care. But like adult me is like, that's amazing. So I got to I got to go some more museums as an adult, I think, and realize that things are amazing. Yeah. Well, and when I was last there, which was admittedly pre-pandemic, one of the the two exhibits that they had that at the time that shook me up and were amazing, they had an exhibit from a modern Native American artist that was like paint, mostly painting, but working in like specifically Western themes, but from like a Native perspective. It was beautiful. And then they also had a big exhibit on this underground um, Spanish newspaper that was being published in Los Angeles in the like eighties and nine, or I don't even know when it was. Um, but like, it was this amazing long running, like underground, uh, paper, uh, that was being published in Spanish in LA. And it was like a really cool exhibit about that. Um, so yeah, they have a lot of stuff too. That's about like sort of tensions, like historical tensions in the West and modern tension in the West. And so very much recommend. And like history of LA too, and like Griffith Park. Yeah, and, yeah lots of LA stuff. Really interesting. Which we all should learn more about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Since we live here. Cool. Okay. Well, so this has been. If you're still listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, we'll beat you. At, we'll be at the Autry Museum in LA. <laughs> we'll have a BTS meetup. <laughs> awesome. 
Okay, well, this has been our conversation about Alien. Uh, we could talk about it for forever. Maybe we'll do each of the Alien movies at some point, because there's definitely a lot to talk about. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> I want to watch whatever the most preferred David Fincher cut is of Alien 3. I don't think I've seen it. I remember I being either. pretty uh, fascinated by it and, like, I don't know, liking and some of the Come like, over, guys. I got the quadrilogy. Let's talk about yeah. it. <laughs> like, okay, we'll stop by there after we go to the Autry. Yeah, there Perfect. you go. <laughs> next time we'll be talking about ladybird so get ready patrons head over to the patreon let us know what you want us to talk about we want to say a big thank you as always to the patrons that make the show possible thank you to our producer vince major and our editors caleb berg graham harther and eric schneider i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by trisha Rand, brian bittner and alex Cayotas. all of our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and say hi and we will see you in the next episode for ladybird Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.